You're listening to the Sojourn Montrose podcast. For more sermons and content, visit sojournmontrose.org. Good morning. Peace be with you. Uh, for those of you who don't know me, uh, my name is Cole. I'm one of the church planting residents uh, here at Sojourn Montrose. And just want to reiterate what, what Marshall was saying, that, that we're really glad you would join us this morning. And, and if you've yet to get connected, I would highly, highly encourage engaging in one of those ways to, to get connected. Um, today we're, we're beginning a new series. It's our annual Life Together series, uh, which is a sermon series in which all of the Sojourn churches, so, so if you're new, we're part of a, a family of neighborhood churches throughout Houston, and so we're one of four Sojourn churches. And every year we have a sermon series called Life Together in which we engage with the idea of what does it mean for us to be a faithful family of God in our city. And, and so we usually dive into a specific topic or theme. And this year we're going to dive into for a few weeks the theme of, of justice and, and mercy and, and how can we be a people who walk in godly, gospel-driven justice. Uh, But this morning, uh, unlike really almost any topic I can think of in regards to justice and mercy, it's going to be an extremely difficult topic. Uh, It's going to be difficult for me uh, and likely for everyone in the room uh, because we're going to talk about something that is is not um, in our culture perceived as black and white in regards to its rightness or wrongness, and that is abortion. And and so I I come this morning with a deep humility and understanding, knowing that all of us have come into the room with different experiences and presuppositions in regards to abortion. Statistics tell me that at least somebody in this room will have in their past been have been party to an abortion. Statistics tell me that in regards to where we are in the city of Houston, that a large number of people in the seats this morning will have very strong political opinions that abortion should be a legal right. And because we are an evangelical gospel preaching church statistics tell me that a lot of us in the room will have very strong and emotional feelings opposed to abortion and 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 really the goal this morning is is not for me to convince you of a political agenda or party my goal is certainly not going to be to heap shame and guilt upon those of us in the room who believe differently or in opposition to what God's word tells us or who have behaved differently or in opposition to what God's word tells us. My goal is to lead us humbly into an interaction with God's word in order that we can be radically shaped by the grace, love, and patience of God, that we can be a people that are truly marked by justice. I'm convinced that this is not an issue in which the church can afford disunity. The stakes are simply too high. We must be united as the people of God in what we believe and how we behave in regards to abortion. 
but I know that I cannot unite us on that. I know that I cannot convince any of us of anything. And so we're going to start by praying. And, and when I pray, I ask that you would join me in prayer, that we would lay down our emotions, as hard as that is, that we would lay down our presuppositions, that we would lay down our experiences in the past and simply come to the Lord with a humble need for him to speak to us. So let's pray. God, we confess and believe that you are good above all things. Teach us to understand that. Teach us to understand your grandeur as our creator. Teach us to love the things that you love and allow us to be shaped by your word. God, we confess that we came into this time with, with a variety of experiences. That we are a group of individuals who have thought differently and behaved differently and, and fought for different things in our past. And we ask this morning that you would give us a trust in you. That you would teach us to be graceful to one another and to the world around us that you would teach us to be people who do and fight for justice. Teach us what is true and nothing else. Make us humble. In light of you being the God of eternity, make us humble. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. So in really any facet of our worldview, as Christians we have to approach it from the lens of the gospel. Uh, so, so we must begin this morning by, by looking at our text, looking at it in light of the gospel, and then asking God to radically shape our lives accordingly. The text this morning reads, as Marshall read for us, it says, if you faint in the day of adversity, your strength is small. So rescue those who are being taken away to death. Hold back those who are stumbling to the slaughter. If you say, behold, we did not know this, does not he who weighs the heart perceive it? Does not he who keeps watch over your soul know it? And will he not repay man according to his work? The proverb is very clear this morning. It is the responsibility of God's people to stand up for and defend those who are voiceless, defenseless, helpless, and oppressed, especially those who are facing death. The text tells us that we can't try to claim ignorance to what is going on around us because the Lord knows our knowledge, and he knows it well. So we must be doers of justice. We must be a people that are willing to look at the adversity of worldly oppression and murder and be strong in fighting for those who are being taken away to death and those who are stumbling to the slaughter. But in order to do that through a gospel worldview from the lens of the saving and Hopeful death and resurrection of Jesus Christ. Let's go to Romans 5. Verses 6 through 11 of Romans 5 say this. 
For while we were still weak, at the right time Christ died for the ungodly. For one will scarcely die for a righteous person, though perhaps for a good person one would dare even to die. But God shows his love for us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Since, therefore, we have now been justified by his blood, much more shall we be saved by him from the wrath of God. For if while we were enemies, we were reconciled to God by the death of his son, much more now that we are reconciled, shall we be saved by his life. More than that, we also rejoice in God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom we have now received reconciliation. So, so the text is telling us through the inspired apostle that though we were unable and undeserving to experience a salvation, and as our sin was building up for us a record of debt that we could never pay that Christ looked upon us weak and sinful, helpless and hopeless and brought about justice. But he didn't bring about justice by making sure that we all experienced the punishment that we rightfully deserved. He didn't bring about justice by pouring upon us loads of shame and guilt and misery. He didn't look upon our hopelessness with a hardened heart, allowing us to meet our sure demise. He reconciled us with God. Keenly aware of our sin and our need for forgiveness, he entered in to a lasting relationship with us making peace through his blood. So this is the gospel that we hoped, hope in. This is what as Christians we put all of our trust in is that that is true. That regardless of my ability to come to God and though I was carrying myself in my sin away to the slaughter, that God interjected himself into the situation through his son so that I might be reconciled and made good in his eyes. And the Bible tells us that that was just. That that is justice. So godly justice holds to hating and fighting against evil. But it does so through radical measures of sacrifice in order to bring about goodness and reconciliation between God and man. I'll say that again. Godly justice holds to hating and fighting against what is evil in the world, but doing so through radical sacrifice in order that reconciliation and goodness could come as God comes into relationship with man. And so as we come as the church seeking, God, seeking godly justice through graceful reconciliation in regards to this topic of abortion, we must know that, that the topic will stir within us deep and, and sometimes hostile emotions and, 
And in that, we have to remember the words of Christ in his famous Sermon on the Mount as he said, Blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called sons and daughters of God. So as Christ has made peace between us and God through his sacrifice, so we should be peacemakers for justice, not warlords for legalism, not the loudest and angriest voice in the room or in the public square. If we're going to begin developing a framework for any amount of human justice, we have to have an appropriate and biblical understanding of humanity. And if we're going to have an appropriate and biblical understanding of humanity, we must first have an appropriate and biblical understanding of God. And the Bible tells us that God is supremely beautiful, that he's holy, that he's good, that he's loving and patient and just. The Bible tells us that God is in control of all things and indeed created all things. The Bible tells us that God is three persons existing simultaneously in relationship with himself, consisting of the same essence, yet performing different roles in loving relationship. The Bible also tells us this in Genesis chapter 1. It tells us that God said, let us make man in our image, after our likeness, and let them have dominion over the fish of the sea, and over the birds of the heavens, and over the livestock, and over all the earth, and every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. So God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created them, male and female, he created them. And God blessed them. And God saw everything that he had made, and behold, it was very good. God is ultimately supreme. He's worthy of our honor, of, our, of all glory. He's worthy of our worship and devotion. And he rules over all things. And mankind has been made in the image of God, by God, to be like God. Mankind has been made by the supreme God of the universe, in the image of the supreme God of the universe, to be like the supreme God of the universe. And so if we as Christians are to have a high view of God, we must have a very high view of man as well. And when I say man, I mean mankind. Male and female, he created them. In the first chapter of Genesis that begins the written revelation of God to his people, we are told that all human life is intrinsically valuable, that it's worthy of dignity and honor. We're told that humans have a uniquely blessed position and role in the running of the universe, that God has bestowed upon them power and honor. And so with this understanding of mankind, we can look at how important it is when the Proverbs tell us that we must rescue those who are being taken away to death. 
we should rescue the person being taken away to death because that person bears the very image of God and is deserving of respect and of justice. As Christians, I believe we must have what I like to call a radical and holistic pro-life worldview. What I mean is from the womb to the tomb, from the moment of conception to the dying last breath, all human life, regardless of situation or actions or past or beliefs, is worthy of dignity, honor, respect, protection, and trust because every single one of them, though broken and varying in the amount that they display the image of God and that they display the likeness of God, all of them are created in the image of God and are like God. The world generally doesn't deny that humans have value and dignity. But the question that is often asked in the conversation of abortion, it does show that the world does value human life and dignity as the question is, where does life begin? At what point is a human life viable? At what point does a, a growing group of cells become a valuable human life worthy of respect? And I could seek to answer this question with the same political arguments you've probably heard your whole life. I could seek to answer the question with, Mountains of scientific explanation of how life begins and when it starts and, and all of these things. But primarily, we will go this morning to the revealed word of God. Because in the Bible, we're left with very clear answers in regards to this. I will say as an aside that a fertilized egg or a human embryo contains biologically everything that is necessary to grow into a fully functioning human life. And so you would be hard pressed to convince me that there is not an ulterior motive in any definition of the beginning of life that starts after fertilization. But that's an aside. To truly see where human life begins, where humans are first given dignity and honor as image bearers, we will go to the scriptures. Psalm 139, we see a psalmist describing that God has intimate and unique knowledge and relationship with his image bearers well before the days of their life are being numbered. As he writes, For you formed me, my inward parts. You knitted me together in my mother's womb. I praise you, for I am fearfully and wonderfully made. Wonderful are your works, my soul knows it very well. My frame was not hidden from you when I was being made in secret. Intricately woven in the depths of the earth, your eyes saw my unformed substance. In your book were written every one of them, the days that were numbered for me, when as yet there were none of them. So the, the psalmist tells us that at least in the very beginning of life being formed in the womb of a mother, 
that God has intimate relationship and knowledge with his image bearer. The first chapter of Ephesians gives us an even more astounding definition of where human life and dignity begins as, as the apostle writes that before the foundation of the earth, God chose his people. So saying that human life and dignity begins at conception actually becomes a very conservative answer. Because the Bible would tell us that human life and dignity actually probably began way before God even created the world. That he knew you by name and the days that you would live and the places that you would be in the way that you would bear his image and be like him. I'm convinced, though, that the most compelling case for human value, especially the human value of the embryo, is the case made by the incarnation of God. Jesus' incarnation into the world as the eternal God of the universe did not begin after 20 weeks of Mary's pregnancy. Jesus has eternally been God. There has never been a moment in all of eternity and there never will be a moment in all of eternity when Jesus has not and will not be completely worthy of honor, dignity, and praise because he is the God and King of all things. And so when we read in the Gospels the account of the conception of Christ within Mary's body by the power of the Holy Spirit, what we see is the God of the universe becoming an embryo that would grow to term in the womb of his mother for months and months, being completely worthy of worship and honor the whole time. As he's physically being knit together in his mother's womb we can trust that the fertilized human embryo bears the image and likeness of God because God himself bore the image and likeness of the fertilized human embryo. So if we, in unison with the scriptures, affirm that all humans bear the image of God and the likeness of God, and therefore are worthy of dignity, love, honor, and life. And if the scriptures tell us that humans are shown to be image bearers at the very moment of conception, if not before, then how do we as a church respond to the reality that every year in our country, almost one million unborn children are aborted? How should we respond when we know that in the most recent numbers I could find, which were in 2011, 18% of pregnancies in our country ended in abortion? That's one in five. How can we look at a murderous practice that is commonplace, that is so ferociously defended as an, a given right? How can we approach this with an attitude that is truly driven by the gospel? My answer is that I don't fully know. My answer is that far too often I am tempted toward rage and unforgiveness. 
but I know that that is not how God responded to me. I don't know the extent to which we as Christians can bind one another's conscience, much less those around us, in regards to whether or not abortion should be a legal right. Here's what I do know. A Christian who has put their hope and dependency solely upon the fact that they did not deserve life and was given life by Jesus through his death, must not view abortion as a matter of personal freedom or an amoral issue. We're not free to choose which humans bear the image of God and are like him. In fact, the inclusive nature of the gospel demands the opposite from us. So we must be a people that speak out against the practice of abortion in general while we willingly make deep sacrifices for the sake of human dignity and life. Which means we can't shame other humans' dignity in the hope that some humans would receive it. We must initiate in relationships with people who believe differently than us, who have lived differently than us in a way that is motivated by the gospel of grace with the desire to bring about reconciliation between God and man. In other words, we just simply need to be committed to godly justice. On the day that I give an account before the Lord, which I will, and you will as well. I don't want my life to be defined by standing idly by as unborn children are neglected and rejected. But I also don't want my life to be defined by rage and unforgiveness toward those who are party to such crimes. I would like to think that God would gift me with a faith to trust him with those things. I want to be defined by the righteous work of Jesus manifesting itself in my heart to be my only hope, my only motivation toward me living a life seeking justice that involves people being reconciled to God. So although I don't have the answers, I, I think this week in, in study and prayer, I've come to some answers in terms of how can we engage with this as the church. First, we as the church must be radically pro-woman. Especially pro-single mother. And a woman who has experienced an unwanted and unexpected pregnancy. Every abortion in history has involved a woman. And the burden of pregnancy is simply very great for women, especially the teenage woman or the single woman or the woman who's experienced abuse and neglect. And if we are pro-life, then we are for the life of both mother and child. Even in situations that 
we can honestly say as the church are not ideal or even good. Our arms should always be gracefully open to women and families in hard situations, whether they have experienced pregnancy before marriage, as a result of abuse, whether they've been rejected by their family and friends or any other situation. And hear this, church, we do not have to sacrifice a good and biblical sex ethic in order to be graceful to those who have lived outside of it. If you think that being graceful to someone who has sinned is sin, then you have missed the gospel. We do not have to sacrifice a good and biblical sex ethic to be graceful to those who have lived outside of it. Why? Because life is always worthy of celebration. Even when the circumstances that brought it about are less than ideal. It's commonly believed in our Christian culture as we have historically fought against abortion that making abortion illegal will lead to a great number, a drastic number of children available to adopt. And that's something that we simply can't prove and I think is unlikely. If the government's laws change and abortion was made illegal, I think what we would have, rather than a huge pool of children ready to be adopted by Christians, is a huge pool of parents and mothers in desperate situations. And so to be pro-life means that we're willing to roll up our sleeves and walk alongside people who have boldly and courageously chosen life even though death seemed much more convenient. We come into an issue that that really reeks and tastes of the stench of death, but we have a Savior who knows that stench very well. And he's conquered it. And by his power, we can be radically pro-woman and radically pro-single mother. How dare we be a place that pours shame on a person for their situation or for their past? Do we not all have areas in which we have failed? in which we're weak, in which we're desperate for help and couldn't survive without the love of others and the grace of God? Have we not all found comfort and grace and meaning in the blood-bought work and grace of Jesus? The second thing we must do, I think, if we're going to have a consistent biblical pro-life worldview is that we must be radically pro-adoption. If we're going to raise our voices for the protection of the unborn child in the unwanted pregnancy, we must be the first group who raises our voice to say, I will take that child and love it well. Because abortions are almost always the result of a situation that seems overwhelming or unhealthy. Situations that in this world, it is often told that an abortion is the responsible answer. 
And as Christians, we know that God chose us before we were born, knowing that we weren't going to be good, and we can likewise choose, choose children before they are born, knowing that their situation will be difficult. The third thing that I think we must do is be very careful and specific in the way that we communicate the value of children with both our speech and our actions. We must speak the truth that children are a blessing from the Lord and that parenting is a privilege and an honor as the Bible promises us that it is. So if we speak of our current children or our future children primarily as burdens or limiters to our freedom, then we agree with a world that says abortion is okay. We should remind ourselves that children in our midst, especially those in our homes, are valuable. That they're precious, honor-worthy honor blessings that bear the image and likeness of God and that teach us much of what it means to be his children. We should know that Jesus said that the kingdom of God belongs to children. So we should speak highly of them and not bemoan them as burdens. Nothing supports the world's view of children more than a parenting complaining about being a parent. I'm not saying that being a parent will not be or is not extremely difficult. I'm not saying it won't require sacrifice. I'm not saying that at times it will feel like a limiter and a burden. But the reality is, is that that's the nature of the Christian life. Is that at times we are convinced that it is too hard, that it is a limiter to our freedom. And what we know is that that is the opposite of truth. It is true that the Christian life is hard. It is also true that it's the only life worth living. Very few things in life that are worth doing are easy, and God promises that parenting is not only worth doing, but it, that it is the normative function and expectation for married Christians. Finally, I think that the most practical and the most helpful thing we can do is to be radically humble. The temptation in our age of social media and the 24-hour news cycle is to believe that politicized issues are completely devoid of people who are affected by them. We can speak out against the despair of abortion, fight for the rights of unborn humans, but still be deeply humble in our service toward people who feel differently or who have done what we would rightly say is wrong. There is no sinful deed that is beyond any of us in a moment of weakness and temptation. And we are no better than the most passionate supporter of abortion or the mother who has ended her pregnancy or the doctor who performs them. We've all done things that are heinous in the eyes of God. We have all at times treated God's image in other people as something less than awe-inspiring and beautiful. And we can never know the fullness 
of someone else's story and situation. So we can be quick to listen and to respond with graceful invitation of relationship with God through repentance and faith rather than speaking with judgment and wrath that Jesus died to absorb. So just as the unborn child is made in God's likeness, so is the doctor who performs the abortion. So is the mother who's had one. So is the politician who fights for that legal right. So as we've begun with the gospel this morning and allowed the gospel to saturate us as we've allowed the God's word to come to bear in our pursuit of truth and justice, so we must also end with the gospel. In the perfect life, the sacrificial death and the glorious resurrection of Jesus, there is endless grace. By trusting in the powerful and complete work of Christ, there is no need or place for guilt and shame, even when there is sorrow. So just as we must stand together as the church in support of those unborn image bearers who are being taken away to death, we must also know that abortion has led some in our midst to experience its great sorrow. And discussing it in our neighborhood parishes will likely bring about for some of us painful memories, feelings of guilt and shame. Here's what I'll say. For those of you who have experienced that sorrow, know that in Jesus Christ, you have a sympathetic, forgiving, and sufficient Savior. He knows your pain very well, and he desires to carry it for you. You have not gone beyond the scope of where his love and grace can go. So would you cast your burdens upon him? Would you bring guilt and shame and sorrow to him, knowing that he is able and desiring to take care of it? This morning, I'm convinced that many of us, if not all of us, need to repent for one thing or another in regards to the topic of abortion. Like we've mentioned, maybe some of us have been party to it or been vehement supporters of it. Maybe you need to repent of just being callous toward the issue as if it's not important. If you're like me, you will need to repent of hatred and rage toward those who have supported it, especially those in the political field. What I do know is that we can repent, that we can seek justice, knowing that our God will forgive us because he has already initiated in the deep sacrifice that makes reconciliation between us and him possible. We can be confident and joyful people knowing that even when we feel convicted and deal with sorrowful topics that we have a true and meaningful value because God has made us intimately and he's made us to bear his image 
He's made us to be like him. And if we are to be like him, we must initiate with justice in the way that he has. Humbly, sacrificially, and with reconciliation in mind. Let's pray. Lord, you... You are the only wise God. And you are our only hope. Let us trust you, Jesus, to be the high priest you've promised that you would be. That you would mediate to us grace and forgiveness and confidence even when we feel so far from it. Would you, by your grace, and by your power, enable us to be a people who do justice? And would you ultimately do the work, even if it is through us, but would you do the work of saving those who are being carried away to death and who are stumbling toward the slaughter? Because you've been faithful to do that for us when we were stumbling to the slaughter. So as we come and and put our hope in your broken body and your shed blood, would you fill us with grace and confidence in your power and make us well aware of our need for you. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.